Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything from t-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets. And of course, their legendary best hoodie ever. So you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days, like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the French Terry collection or the rich and polished premium slub crew tee. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use Staple 20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labrice, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest today is Rhea Ewing, author of Fine, a comic about gender, out now from LiveRipe. This is a vibrant, loving work of narrative nonfiction, exploring myriad aspects of gender identity and presentation, femininity, masculinity, gender and race, relationships, hormones, healthcare, housing, in equally compelling images and text. Here's a bit from Kirkus's starred review of Fine. In 2012, graphic artist Ewing, then a recent college graduate, joined a transgender support group to, quote, speak honestly about this mixed-up thing called gender, to exist without a sense that I was failing at my part in life, end quote. After finding online resources too impersonal, the author began interviewing friends about gender and reaching out to LGBTQ plus centers for assistance. The intent was to understand their own gender ambivalence through the perspectives of others and figure out, quote, why I am cut out of some spaces and invited into others, end quote. In their debut book, Ewing offers a timely, educative, and vividly rendered illustrated portrait. Based in the Midwest, they spoke with more than 50 individuals varying in gender, age, and race, and the narrative includes those remarkable stories which evolve as the book progresses. A vital, richly textured resource for anyone seeking a better understanding of gender identity. Rhea Ewing is a comic illustrator and fine artist who graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a BFA in drawing and printmaking. They currently live in California and will join us from there soon. But first, in this sponsored interview, I'm talking with young readers author Leslie Bullion, who is well-known and well-loved for bringing science to life in poetry and in prose. Her latest is Serengeti, Plains of Grass, which our reviewer calls a charmingly illustrated and beautifully written picture book. It's illustrated by Becca Statlander and out now from Peachtree Books. Leslie Bullion joins us now. Welcome, Leslie, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Megan. 
I'm thrilled to be discussing this beautiful picture book, Serengeti, Plains of Grass, which you've written and uh, it was illustrated by Becca Statlander. Yes, beautiful illustrations by Becca Statlander. Now, um, I learned from the jacket copy that you've had the opportunity to visit East Africa. When was that and what were the conditions? Well, it was uh, quite a long time ago. Um, It was in 1998. And my husband's sister had been working and living in East Africa on and off for many years. And she had a Fulbright teaching fellowship at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Hmm. So she invited us to come. She said, hey, I have a place for you to stay. I want to show you my home away from home. And when people invite me to things like that, I say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm one of those too. I say yes too, though I've not had an invitation quite so grand in a long time. (laughs) So what, what are some of the impressions you were left with after that journey? Well, there were so many remarkable and momentous moments during the visit. We visited with families and people that she worked with, and um, we were in cities and towns. But we did have uh, just under a week of safari, Mm -hmm. and I loved every minute of the entire trip. We were there a month, but the two days in the Serengeti just went right to my heart. And I always dreamed of going back. I was so struck by the expanse and everything that you could see and everything you couldn't see that was going on under and among the grasses. And I just thought about it and thought about it for many years before I figured out how I wanted to go back, which was through writing Mm. and poetry and exploring it kind of with my heart. Now, you're well-known and beloved for, for blending science and poetry. That's, um, it's, a, it's a heady combination in this book. Well, thank you. I, I think um, that was part of it is that I, I did start writing uh, quite a bit of science poetry. And once I was doing that, I thought, you know, th- this is the way I'm going back. Uh, th- this is the way I can sort of explore more and express what I felt being there. Mm. So each each of the two-page spreads in this book, it features um, a four-line verse of poetry. Can you tell me a little bit about the form you, choose, you chose to use? Sure. It's a Swahili uh, stanza called the Utendi. And it's uh, got Arabic origins. It was used in a lot of traditional Swahili poetry, which I'm not an expert on, but I did read about different forms of poetry and decided that that would be a beautiful way to express this and also, of course, connected to the region. And it has a, it is, it's a four-line stanza, the first three lines, there, it's kind of a uh, partial rhyme. Hmm. Not a perfect rhyme. In Kiswahili, the language the Swahili people speak, words end in vowels. So the, the sound is a little bit different, but the music that that makes sounded to me like what would be a partial rhyme in the English language. So I kind of adapted the form to what I wanted to say. And in the Utendi, there's a refrain a hmm. last line or a word that ties, you could tie one stanza to the next. And I thought, well, 
This is a grass-based ecosystem. It's an herbivore ecosystem. Using the word grass at the end and trying to relate it to each animal that I was using in the food web would be a really nice way to use that idea of a refrain. So that's what I did. Right. Do you happen to have a copy of the book nearby? I do. Would you would you be so kind as to read us one of these oh, one of these sure. verses? I'd love to. Well, I'll I'll start with the first one. It's not an animal, but it's the setup. The Serengeti shortgrass plain and all the area was volcanic millions of years ago. And so when the volcanoes erupt, they send a shower of volcanic ash down, which is full of nutrients that makes the soil rich for the grass to grow. So that's how it starts. And of course, we're in addition to following the migration of the animals, we're following the seasons. And in this case, it's a rainy seasons, in not, not analogous to our winter, summer, spring, and fall, but uh, a short rains and a long rain season. So this is coming into the very beginning of the short rain season. And we're looking at the open expanse of the Serengeti with a heavy storm cloud and a bolt of lightning. And just, it's so spectacular what Becca Statlander did on each one of these spreads really for me evokes the splendor of the place. So this is the first stanza. Parched soil bed of volcano ash, roots asleep in a tangled mesh. One drop, two, then downpours rush. First rains wake new blades of grass. So that's the first stanza. And as you mentioned, each page has very brief science notes that give a little more background. And the book, of course, opens with a big note about all of the systems that are going on as the story goes along. I'm smiling right now because you presented these, like the poetry in such a beautiful way with the additional information. Very good. (laughs) Good to know. And also a description of the imagery we're getting, which is so key for, you know, um, a podcast for storytelling through this medium. I think you really gave listeners a good feel of this beautiful book. Oh, good. I hope so. I mean, every Every spread is is just remarkable. I can't say enough about how much I love what Becca did. It's a truly beautiful book. I'm holding it in my hand right now. It's called mm-hmm. Serengeti, Plains of Grass. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss it on Fully Booked. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That was Leslie Bullion, author of Serengeti, Plains of Grass, illustrated by Becca Statlander, out now from Peachtree Books. And now, Rhea Ewing joins us to discuss Fine, a comic about gender. Welcome, Rhea, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so glad to be here. I am honored to have you on. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm super psyched to discuss this beautiful book. I'm holding it in my hand right now, Fine, a comic about gender. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's let's get the party started. Oh my goodness. So this book began as a different kind of project than the project it became. What did mm. it start out as? Yeah, well, so you need to picture tiny college undergraduate might me. Oh. About to graduate from uh, you know, about to graduate with a bachelor's of fine arts 
And I hadn't taken any gender studies classes because I had weird feelings about gender. And I was like, I don't want to unpack that in a course where I'm getting a grade, Mm -hmm. you know, those classes are for other people who are cooler than me. Um, Yeah. So I got to towards the end of college and I was like, you know, I don't understand gender. I don't, I don't get it. I want to understand it. Something doesn't quite feel like other, I, I don't. Something doesn't quite feel aligned with what other people seem to be experiencing and what I'm experiencing. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. And I love making comics. So, you know, I got this I got this nice summer project idea where I'll just talk to a few people. I'll make a little 24-page zine about gender. And then I'll have it all figured out. And it'll be beautiful and easy. And I'll never have to think about gender again. And that is not what happened. Uh, <laughs> it, it turns out that uh, mm-hmm. gender is uh, an exceptionally and beautifully complicated thing. And just talking to a dozen of my friends and family members uh, was not illuminating enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, so from there, it kind of ballooned out as I realized, oh, I should probably like talk to Um, more folks in the trans community. Oh, I should talk to uh, some folks who maybe aren't white. I should talk to uh, a wider range of ages uh, because people in different generations have different experiences in terms of like what words are used and uh, how those experiences are framed. Kind of my list just kept getting longer and longer, the more Mm -hmm. people I talked to. And then eventually there was no way it was going to fit in a 24 page zine. (laughs) And then I had a book. Yeah. Then you had a book. Why was Fine the right title for this book? Okay. I have to address the meme. Okay. You know, the meme with the dog and the fire. This is fine. Listen, uh, am I showing my age? I'm 39 now. I'm 39 and a half if we're still doing halves at this point. Am I too old? You're not too old. Oh, Here's thank the you. thing. Thank this you. is God. this is before that meme. Oh, so okay. I I titled the book before the meme. <laughs> and then the meme of the dog and the fire and this is fine came out and then everyone was talking about how everything was fine uh-huh. uh thinking about the dog. So um I love the cartoonist who made who made the the drawing that became that meme but that is okay. that is not that. Um I love the word fine because it has so many different meanings. Um I think the most well used one at this point is when someone says, "Oh, it's fine." And it's not at all actually fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I also like that it can be meant in a very sincere way as well. Of Like, you know, sometimes things are just okay. You know, you can just be like, yeah, stuff is, I mean, it's fine. And I don't have a strong, strong feel one way or the other. I like that it can also refer to like exceptional quality of something. Um, so like a, a fine garment, for mm, example. Yes. Um, or to look at something very closely, seeing the fine details. And all of this was kind of, you know, resonating with the way I was experiencing gender and the way that this project was challenging me uh, to look at it. So cool. And so too, fine can mean like, you're fine. And I love like some of the oh, most hell joy- yeah. yeah. And some of the most <laughs> joyous moments in this book come when people regard their bodies with pleasure. I yes. think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I, I would have woken up at three in the morning, like, oh, I didn't mention the, hey, <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> the meaning of it as well. Yes. Yes. 
So um, I found it really interesting that like the first images we get in this book, aside from the cover, which we can talk about later, you want to put a pin in it, aside from the few illustrations in the intro, like the first panels we see are landscapes. Why, Why is that? So one of the things that I discovered through this project is how contextual gender is, and that Mm. includes context by geography. So those first three panels are scenes from uh, places where I grew up. I grew up in a small town in Western Kentucky. And then uh, when I was a teenager, my family moved to Wisconsin. And so there are images of both the kind of beautiful horse pastures uh, that Kentucky is known for. There's a prairie landscape, um, which is a landscape I'm still absolutely in love with. And then there is a, a still from uh, Baraboo, Wisconsin, the town where my family moved to. Um, and it shows the fairgrounds, which is a place that I have a lot of happy memories of. And I also, I, I don't know, there's, there's some other like little details in that illustration that I liked too. Um, so those are kind of, I want viewers to think about how physical place can inform our experiences of things like gender, both as we have these cultural differences along geographic lines, and also thinking about it in terms of really anywhere that you are in the country, the distinction between rural, urban, and suburban experiences of gender and diversity, and those uh, can play out, I think, in really interesting ways. Oh, absolutely. As somebody who grew up in both the city and a town with 64,000 apple trees and 8,000 people, I found (laughs) that to be true, my lived Mm. experience. Mm. Okay, so we're thinking about setting, we're thinking about place, geography. We're also right off the bat thinking about time because the first person you introduce visually is you, uh, (laughs) 2005, and then soon we meet you, 2010. Why was it important to mark time throughout this book? Yeah, so uh, time, uh, as my project kind of expanded out from this little summer zine to Mm -hmm. a project that wound up taking a decade, um, one of the challenges I wound up facing repeatedly in both telling my own story and in telling the stories of the people who graciously uh, agreed to interview with me and share share a little bit about themselves um, was that, you know, our experiences change over time. Um, I'm not the same person that I was when I was four years old. I think, (laughs) you know, I think it's a good thing. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but I'm also not the same person that I was when I first started this book. The inclusion of the timestamps and of embracing time as a factor in the kind of this complexity and nuance of gender in our experiences uh, was a real breakthrough for me in terms of being able to actually write the book and pull it into something cohesive. And that would also be respectful, um, not only to the way I personally thought about gender in the past, but also to uh, the people who I interviewed. And we have noticed that um, online, for example, when something gets shared without a timestamp, mm-hmm. or sometimes even if it gets shared with a timestamp and yeah. people ignore the timestamp, it can everything can kind of have this sense of, oh, it's happening right now. This person just said this. How could they use this outdated language? Or, oh, like, you know, you you shared me saying this and it's, you know, I've transition since then, or I've come out, or I've changed how I how I ex- describe myself, you know, it was really important to me to not do harm to anyone by implying that they were still the people that they were seven years ago, 10 years ago, when I first talked to them. So having the time, I think both 
allows this sense of evolution, which I think you can most clearly see through my own story. Um, yeah. Since that's where I have the longest, <laughs> the longest time dive. And also to show respect to my participants. Right. And the other factor too is something I've struggled with quite a bit uh, growing up and with my queerness and with my gender identity was the narrative of having always known, mm. which, you know, I think is certainly true for some people. And it's also not true for some people. Um, and I'm one of the people where my sense of self and my identity has shifted over time, um, as I've had new experiences, and I've, you know, learned more about what works for me and what doesn't. But that narrative of, oh, I always knew since I was Mm -hmm. since I could first describe since I was three years old, I knew um, that I was trans, like, that's so not my experience. Um, And, you know, that narrative can be very valuable in terms of making certain arguments for uh, human rights. Right. Um, Yes. And when you rely on that as your only argument, you miss out on like kind of the natural evolution that we as humans like experience throughout our lives. And that, um, you know, experiences of queerness and uh, shifting gender identity are just as valid and just as important and essential, regardless of whether it's something that you've always known, or that you found the words for later, or it was an experience that shifted for you over time. Right. I'm I'm one of those people too. I mean, I didn't know. Color me surprised. <laughs> <laughs> With how it all turned out. Oh. You know? <laughs> and I love that, you know, this book holds a lot of truths, you know, that exist simultaneously that may, you know, at a glance seem contradictory. But then if you look a little bit closer, you can see where the edges of the puzzle pieces fit together, perhaps, or they, I don't know if they, you know, bounce off one another, repel, like, anyway, it's, it it could all be true. And there are people you interview in this book whose, you know, perceptions are really, you know, really varied. Mm, Yeah, yeah, that was kind of another thing that I had to grapple with. Um, Because when I first started the book, in my naivete, I thought that I would be able to combine all of these perspectives into a single, cohesive, clear and concise vision and definition of what gender was. Ah. And of course, uh, (laughs) everyone like then I'd be like, well, what do I do? Like my interviewees disagree with each other or they're using words to mean different things or sometimes opposite things, using the same word to mean something totally different. How do I reconcile this? And um, you know, I think one of my big steps just in maturing as a as a person was accepting like multiple things could be true at once and that, you know, there is kind of like the point is in the process of trying to pull the puzzle pieces together with respect and care for all of the players involved. Um, so that's something that I uh, invite my readers to do with my book. And um, I, I genuinely hope that it, that it, uh, open space if someone hasn't um, been able to hold multiple perspectives like that, um, hasn't had the opportunity. I hope that it, it creates that for someone. Yeah, you write in the book, take this book for what it is, my own attempt to understand and connect with other people, no more, no less. That really relaxed me as your reader. I was like, <laughs> okay, let's let's do this together. Yeah. And yeah. 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 Well, I think 
you know, I'm, I'm not an authority on gender. Mm. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, like I admitted kind of at the beginning of our interview here, like I never took a gender studies class kind of yeah. for my own weird neurotic reasons, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, but also there's just the matter of the limitations of my own perspective. You know, mm. I have a lot of privileges that have shielded me and muffled me away from the realities that the way a lot of things such as ableism, racism, classism, uh, just lack of access to resources can all heavily impact gender. And uh, kind of one of the contradictions of the book that I eventually had to come to terms with was, I don't think I'm the most qualified person to, you know, pull together a cohesive, you know, vision of what gender is, or even necessarily the most qualified person to tell all of these stories. I just happened to be the person who could, you know, live in my parents' basement for a few years, <laughs> and make a 300 page graphic novel about it. Um, and I have some thoughts on like, you know, what, what the arts and literature world might look like if we had better support for people with fewer resources and privileges to be able to dedicate that sort of time. But but yeah, eventually I had to accept that for this specific project, maybe in my ideal world, the book would be written by someone else. But for this specific project, I was the one who needed to do it and I got it out there. Well, I admire all you, how you characterize it. I admire what you say about it. And I also admire you as a fellow journalist. I was like, the journalism of this book is mighty, is how I felt. Oh my goodness. I'm very happy to hear you say that. I do feel like I accidentally did a journalism. You did a journalism. You did. You accidentally did a, an excellent journalism <laughs> over 10 years. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. It was... Um, I remember, let's see, in 2015, I realized that I had been sort of like, no, let's see, this would have been in 2017, I realized that I had been kind of head down, isolated, working on this book for, you know, way too long. And I needed some other eyes on it, people who I trusted. Uh, So I had like a little, hmm, I guess, like focus group review meeting where I invited like, uh, some friends and colleagues of mine who I really, really trusted uh, with regards to gender issues to come and read a draft of the book. And I'm sure it was a little weird because I was like, listen, I need you all to come to my house and sit down for five <laughs> hours with these massive three ring binders of undrawn comic pages. If we've got the dialogue and we've got basically some stick figures and some scribbles. And I need you to read this and like, tell me what you think. You know, and then I'm just going to sit here at the table and watch you read it because I don't know what else to do with myself while you're like the first people to like really look at this book in its entirety. Um, And, uh, you know, if any of those folks are listening, thank you so much for doing that. That was a really pivotal point for me. Um, So the questions that followed kind of helped me appreciate the absurdity of what I had undertaken. So, for example, folks with academic experience were like, oh, how did you transcribe your interviews? Did you use this software? Like, you know, and I was like, no, I just listened to it at half speed and typed it out. (laughs) You don't spend six hours transcribing an hour long. What is okay? So that could have gone a little bit smoother. Um, Or, uh, you know, folks asked me like, oh, like, did you have funding to like travel out to these different cities? And Um, no, I did not. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, and I kind of realized that I had essentially sort of accidentally assigned myself a, uh, a thesis on on gender without any like institutional support or broader sense. So it was a lot of like flying by the seat of my pants and accidentally doing things the hard way. And I forgot how I got on this, but yeah, essentially it was a, it I'm was a, a real moment of, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a reason why the summer little summer project has taken me years and years to do is because I actually like, I didn't realize the level of ambition that I had set for myself at the beginning. And I think that if I had, I probably wouldn't have done it. So I guess, thank goodness for the naivete of my past self. <laughs> Cheers to that. Yeah. Seriously, because yeah, what yeah. we're left with is remarkable. Oh my goodness. I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy. I haven't heard a lot of people like audibly tell me because, you know, we're, we're still in sort of pandemic lockdown yeah, uh, yeah. out where I am. Uh, so I haven't done any like in-person events or anything for the yeah. book launch. So you're actually like one of the like first few people that I've heard like audibly tell me since the book release that like yeah. you enjoyed it. So I'm a little yeah. bit like, oh, you, you <laughs> I don't know why you would be talking to me. If you didn't. Oh my God. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. That's I'm so it. delighted to be one of those people. I'm so, I'm honored to be one of those people and to tell you how good it really is. We've got everything in here. It is serious. It is thoughtful. It, there's joy, as mentioned before. And I'm thinking back to, especially uh, the section Ginger from 2012. Oh my and goodness. The dance. I adore Ginger. I can see why. Also, it's funny too. And I am a little bit in love with The Best Couple, 2013. Oh my goodness. Can we talk about them? (laughs) Yes. Um, So they were one of my favorite interviews. And I just, I love like, you know, there are a couple who they've been together so long. They are finishing each other's sentences. Like you follow the same story with like half of it is told by one person and half by the other, but it's like interlaid between and they're interjecting on one another. And it's all done with so much affection and familiarity. It's like they share a brain. Yeah. And they're also two beautiful, completely individual people um, who know that and own that. You know, I think that a story that is not told often enough is the way that we adapt to our partners over time. And Mm. I think that's true regardless of whether, you know, you're in a relationship with a transgender person or not. We all grow and change over our lifetimes. Uh, There was, I remember when I was growing up, there was someone who mentioned that, you know, they felt like they had been uh, married to seven different women (laughs) throughout their (laughs) lifetime, just because like there there had been that much growth and change over their relationship. And, you know, and this is a cisgender couple, right? So, you know, I think that in general, uh, that doesn't get enough, enough press. And certainly Mm -hmm. in my relationship with my own spouse, like the seeing, seeing each other like grow and evolve and and doing this dance uh, with one another is one of the things that I love most about love most about being in love. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing I really value in relationships. This couple has it in spades and to have it be so beautifully explained and genuinely explained by them in this interview that they did with me was incredible. You know, the narrative of, oh, my spouse transitioned and it tore us apart, right? Like Mm, that's a very easy sensationalist narrative that you know, gets pushed a lot. Um, I think sometimes by people with a political agenda. And I think sometimes by people who just 
didn't have the tools to navigate that situation, which is uh, kind of a tragedy in its own right. Um, so to have this couple talk honestly about their struggles with the with all of the changes that were happening, and to you know, and also about all of their joys and being really into it, yeah. <laughs> Even <laughs> as were there times where maybe they were not not into it, yeah. You know, I just I love it. it's all of the all of the things that I that I value and that I wanted to convey with the book of the nuance and the honesty and the affection and the joy all together. So the fact that they did all of that and could finish each other's sentences, I'm just like, <laughs> yes, this is yes. goals. Couple goals. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Um, in in interviews, like I really like time has just flown by here. So we have just a couple more minutes if oh, if, no. you'll, if you'll stick with me. I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah, but, um, I'm here. I can do this all day. <laughs> I'm wondering about you know other interviews you've done, and if there is like a favorite question or favorite subject that comes up that you just really want to talk about here um, that our listeners could learn about. I think the my favorite question to ask people, and this is actually, I had originally planned it to be its own section in the book, and then mm. it wound up being a much more subtle note throughout the entire thing. But the question, my favorite question to ask was, where do you feel the most safe expressing your gender and fully being yourself? And I asked everyone this question, um, whether they were transgender or cisgender. And I it was really insightful to me because people would be quite vulnerable with me. Like, you know, there were some people who said, well, I only really feel safe in the bath by myself. And that's it. Uh, there were some people who said, oh, I feel safe everywhere I go. Like, this is no no problem. You know, like when I mentioned those two answers, you could maybe start to make inferences about the identities of those people. But the yeah. person who only felt safe in the bathtub was a cisgender person. And the person who felt safe everywhere they went was a transgender person. Um, and that it really had more to do with community connection and, you know, self-confidence. For me, hearing all those different answers was very healing in terms of thinking about how to be more at peace and safe with myself. And it's also, I think, very bridges a lot of our perceived differences. You know, I think that all of us, regardless of how we relate to our gender and whether we identify with what we were assigned at birth or not, all of us are seeking places where we feel safe and where we can be our whole and most authentic selves and feel feel good. So that's something all of us need cisgender or transgender alike. Uh, and so, yeah, so that was that was definitely my favorite question to ask. If I could ask any reader a question, that would be that one as well. What helps you feel safe? And uh, how can you offer that to yourself and other people? Hmm. Um, you offer this book, you dedicate this book to everyone who wonders if they are enough. You are enough, you write. Yeah, it's a powerful dedication. How did that come to be? Um, it's what I needed to hear, um, when, when I was younger and, you know, thinking about who I wanted this book to resonate the most with, it really is anyone, um, whether that's someone who's just wondering, like, am I enough of a man or a woman? And that is what they were assigned at birth. Like, yeah, you are, you are enough. And if it's someone wondering, you know, maybe I want to be, you know, maybe I want to transition, but I don't know if I really count. Like, am I trans enough? Am I gay enough? Like, yes, you you are enough exactly as you are. Um, and for me as a bisexual person and as a non-binary person, um, those sorts of spaces and discomforts are things that I had to sit with for a really long time. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'd like to extend that to, to anyone. You are enough. 
Raya, as mentioned, I could, you know, we could talk all day. It, it, is, it is fluid. It is effortless. It is a beautiful thing. But unfortunately, we must wrap up. So I will just ask you my most hospitable question, which is, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about Fine or the conversation we've had today? Any little finishing thought? Uh, I guess my finishing thought is that, you know, there are oodles and oodles like probably at least 10 other books of worth of material that could have gone into this, into this book that, that was cut. And, you know, really what I hope that readers take away is that it's not necessarily just these specific answers, but that these are conversations that everyone can have. And that if you have the opportunity to talk honestly and vulnerably and with curiosity about gender, regardless of who you are, I encourage you to do so um, because it can be a really valuable and healing experience to connect with other people in that way. Raya, thank you so much for speaking with me about Fine, a comic about gender, and for joining me today on Fully Booked. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that was Raya Ewing, author of Fine, a comic about gender, out now from Live Right. After the break, we'll ask our editors for their top picks and books for the week. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. We're joined now by our editors with their top picks and books for the week. We have young readers editors Laura Simeon and Manaz Dar, nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, and fiction editor Lori Muchnick. Starting with Laura, hello, what have you chosen for us this week? So I'm really excited to share the latest from Hannah Alkaf and her Yay! name's... Sorry. Yes, exactly. I know. <laughs> so, yay. so Hannah Alkaf is so versatile. So her first book was YA historical fiction. And then her second one was middle grade paranormal, the girl and the ghost, which was a Kirkus prize finalist. And now her latest is a mystery and it's called queen of the tiles. And I don't know about you, but I love books that immerse you in subcultures, kind of offbeat you know, worlds that you wouldn't really get to know otherwise. And this one is set in the world of competitive Scrabble, which is just so much fun. And it's the the specific setting is a tournament in Malaysia where there's a bunch of teens who are gathering one year after the public death in the finale of the Scrabble tournament of the queen of the tiles, um, Trina. And Trina's best friend, Najwa, has been basically suffering from PTSD ever since she has, you know, anxiety and panic attacks and gaps in her memory. And she's, she's getting therapy and she's got this arsenal of coping skills, but it's, you know, it's really tough to go back to this place where her best friend who was just the sort of magnetic personality and Instagram influencer and larger than life, you know, where, where she died so tragically. So anyway, Nadra's there and surrounded by all their, you know, mutual friends. And she starts to wonder, like, was it really this tragic accident or was it maybe murder? And she starts to wonder this because, 
she's sort of obsessively looking back at Trina's Instagram and, you know, like remembering the good old days and then Instagram stories with Scrabble words, like ominous ones, like regicide start showing up supposedly posted from Trina's account. And, you know, of course that would make anybody suspicious and terrified. And she starts digging into this and it, and the mystery just unfolds, um, you know, as you get to know all the different characters and it's just, it has this really strong sense of place. It's an ensemble cast, but they're really well drawn. So it's not hard to keep track of, you know, who's who. And it's just, it's just this really fun, compelling read. Uh, Laura, thank you for that recommendation. I'd like to, suggest a read-alike from nonfiction from quite a few years ago called Word Freak by Stefan Fatsis. And it's called, or the subtitle is Heartbreak, Triumph, Genius, and Obsession in the World of Competitive competitive Scrabble Players. Um, I think anybody who's interested in Scrabble or puzzles or, you know, any kind of crossword puzzle, anything like that would be really interested in this book as well. I actually, I read that one and one, it's a great read like, and I remember one of the things that really surprised me about it was I had expected people who love Scrabble to be really, really interested in the meanings of words as well. And I learned from it that so many of them just memorize letter combinations. And that was something that came up in Queen of the Tiles as well, because the protagonist genuinely loves words and what you can do with them and what they mean. And so a lot of Scrabble words and their definitions are woven into the story. And it's it's really fun. I was like, oh, it reminds me of studying for the SATs, but in a more interesting way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's also, a, there was a documentary that's not exactly the book, but it's called Word Wars. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of good crossover there and you see a lot of the same characters as well. Yeah, absolutely. Laura's pick for the week is Queen of the Tiles by Hannah Alkaf. Thank you very much, Laura, for that pick. Next up, we've got Manaz. What have you chosen for us this week? Hey there. I have chosen a picture book called Gibberish by Young Bo. And this is the story of a young Asian boy and his mom who um, immigrate to a new land. And we don't get any information about where they're coming from or where they're going, only that this new place feels very strange to the, um, the protagonist. And because we don't get those specific details, I think that's what kind of makes it feel very universal. And what I love about it is the art has this kind of visual metaphor the world that the boy, Dot, finds himself in is initially depicted as a very bizarre one. It's in black and white. Everything's in black and white except for the boy. And everyone he encounters are kind of these weird creatures. Some of them are kind of grotesque monsters. Others look kind of like almost like Disney characters from like 1930s or 1940s shorts. And everyone speaks in these indecipherable symbols. And I thought it was really interesting because it's such a contrast to the ways in which Immigrants have typically been depicted in pop culture. Um, we've often seen them depicted as exoticized or strange in comparison to the dominant culture. You know, think like the movie Sixteen Candles. But this book instead depicts the dominant culture as the one that is strange. And I love that it's something that, you know, younger kids, kindergartners, preschoolers are going to grow up seeing and realizing that that experience. In some ways, it almost feels like a picture book version of Sean Tan's graphic novel, The Arrival, Although this book has words, whereas that one was wordless, but it's that use of, um, I think, visual metaphor that really stands out. And I love that um, in the world of gibberish, you know, slowly, imperceptibly almost, um, the world starts to become a little bit more friendly and warm and filling with color. 
as the protagonist meets a friend and starts to find his footing. Manaz, I was so excited to hear about this book, and I, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it reminds me of um, a favorite picture book of mine from a couple of years ago. It's The Day Saida Arrived by um, Susana Gomez Redondo, illustrated by Sonia Wimmer and translated by Lawrence Schimmel. And it's a picture book from Spain about a new girl, Saida, who arrives from Morocco, um, speaking Arabic, and the protagonist, you know, doesn't speak Arabic. And so she, they, they learn each other's languages. And it's this kind of equal exchange of language and culture. And it's really visually striking the way the new words they learn are kind of woven into the art. And it's, it's not like Saida is this object of pity. It's like the two of them, you know, they're, they're friends, they're equals, and they're sharing as peers. And it's just really lovely. Yeah, I think that's so important because I feel like growing up, there were a lot of well-meaning TV shows or books where it was like, you know, we have to help this new kid fit into this culture and they're at a disadvantage. And I feel like I love that we're seeing, um, you know, books that really challenge that assumption. So that one also sounds amazing. Manaz's pick for the week is Gibberish by Young Bo. Thank you so much, Manaz, for that choice. Next, we've got nonfiction. Eric, what have you chosen for us? I chose a very timely book. Obviously, the tragedy in Ukraine continues and um, it's dominating the news. So I have a book from former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, and her memoir is called Lessons from the Edge. And she had been in the Foreign Service with the U.S. Uh, since 1986. She had some time in Moscow, uh, a little bit in Somalia, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Armenia. And then finally, she was in Ukraine in 2016. She was named ambassador. Um, and it's a really anybody who's interested in diplomacy will find plenty to love in her story. It starts when she's born and it goes through her childhood. But I think the most interesting parts are the her ambassadorial duties, fighting corruption in a lot of these former Soviet satellites. And, you know, of course, a lot of you know that she was the ambassador in Ukraine in 2019 when Donald Trump was trying to get her and her associates to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Um, and so she goes into and she was fired after being smeared across the press. And she's very candid about what she went through. And I think um, anybody who's interested in a little bit of background about what's going on in Ukraine right now related to Russia and also related to Trump, uh, I think you'll find a lot. Uh, a lot to love here. Um, she, she's, she admits that a lot of the ex-Soviet province governments are corrupt and ill-governed, um, but she's also very clear-eyed about what she was asked to do under the Trump administration and how a lot of that has really contributed to what's going on right now. That sounds so interesting, Eric. In case people are interested in reading fiction about Ukraine, I've got a few suggestions that, you know, might be good read-alongs with the ambassador's book. Um, there's a book that just came out called Gray Bees by Andrei Kirkov, which is a really interesting book. Um, it's about a beekeeper who lives in a small town in the gray zone. This was obviously written more than, you know, a couple months ago. So it's the gray zone is the zone between, you know, Ukraine proper the, the Ukrainian army where they are stationed and where the Russian troops are in the Donbass region. So he, this beekeeper is one of only two people left in this small town, and he's just going about trying to live his life. 
Um, and it's, it's just beautifully written and an interesting look at what's been going on in the last few years. And um, there's also a book of short stories called Lucky Breaks by Yevgenia Belarusitz, uh, which are stories, short stories about women living on the margins of Ukrainian society. And uh, they're really striking stories. And that also just came out. So people might want to take a look at those. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Eric's pick for the week is Lessons from the Edge by Marie Yovanovitch. Thank you very much, Eric, for that choice. And finally, we've got fiction. Laurie, what have you chosen for us? I've got a book called The Marquess Makes His Move by Diana Quincy. Or maybe it's The Marquess. I don't know. How do you pronounce it? Um, um, one of the British titles, Marquess. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought this is a romance title. And I thought that people who have been watching Bridgerton on TV might enjoy this because the interest, you know, one of the interesting things about the Bridgerton TV series is that, you know, they've cast diverse actors and, you know, made some of the characters be different races and different backgrounds. Whereas actually Julia Quinn's Bridgerton novels didn't do that. That was created to open up the world of the TV series. But Diana Quincy's, um, clandestine affair series of books the the family that ties all of her the books together have middle eastern descent there's an an earl i think well no actually sorry a marquis who is the father of the main character in this book and he married you know he made a love marriage which is so unusual at the time and the woman he married was of middle eastern descent and she came from a family who was in trade which you know is almost as um, unheard of for the nobility to marry as someone who is of Middle Eastern descent. So the main characters in this book, The Marquis Makes His Move, are a, a woman named Rose Fleming, who is a white British map maker who lives in London with her husband. And she owns a map making store that was left to her by her uncle. Um, but her husband and she she learned to draw the maps from her uncle and she makes beautiful beautiful maps with details and lovely phillips but her husband doesn't think anyone would buy them if they knew that they were made by a woman so he claims you know authorship of all of these maps and she's sort of at home making the maps and he's the front person and he's doing all of the the face of the business but he's kind of a, a creep and a jerk and he hasn't come to her bedroom since right after they were married four years ago. So they have a sort of loveless marriage. Then meanwhile, they get a new footman at their house, a very self-confident, good-looking man named Alex. So it turns out that Alex is not actually a footman. He is the new Marquis of Brandon, the son of this Middle Eastern uh, Marquis father and a Middle Eastern mother. And he is sure that Rose, that the map maker, who he thinks is Rose's husband, but is actually Rose, has cheated him out of land in collusion with his neighbor. So he has posed as a footman, very believably, but, you know, romance reasons. He poses a footman, makes his way into Rose's household to try to gather evidence that the map maker has colluded against him. So, of course, they fall in love. Rose doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know that she makes the maps. Of course, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler because this is a romance. You know, it's all going to 
and you know have a happy ending you know of course rose's husband was cheating on the map but you know rose didn't know anything about it so you know how they managed to find each other and the thing as our reviewer pointed out the thing that's really one thing that's really unusual about this book is that the heroine starts the book married to one person and ends the book married to a different person and you know in the regency period this is very unusual and so there's a a really neat twist about how that happens so it's just a it's a really complex story and she handles it really beautifully and it's just also you know she's doing a great job of broadening the world of the regency by introducing heroines who work at interesting jobs and creating a family of middle eastern descent so who is different from everyone else in the town so it's a really uh i would recommend it highly yeah this one sounds um really amazing and even though i'm not personally um a romance reader i've been seeing all the bridgerton stuff all over my twitter timeline i was seeing today like really interesting discussions about um you know if you're an actor don't wear your corset like right before I think eating or something because you're going to regret it if you go into shooting afterwards. And <laughs> I saw a really fascinating piece focusing on the actress Sharita Chandran talking about the colorism that she as a South Asian, you know, British um, person experienced as a young girl. And I love that um, Bridgerton is really opening up these conversations for us to have. Um, and as somebody who is kind of a newbie to Regency era romance, do you have any recommendations for me, Lori? Um, that's a good question. Well, other than this whole series by Diana Quincy, there's a novel. It's not quite out yet. There's one coming out in July by Erica Ridley called Nobody's Princess, which I think features an African princess come to England. And if you're not completely wedded to the Regency, you should check out Alyssa Cole's Reluctant Royal series, which starts with A Princess in Theory, which is set in, in modern times, but it, you know, it's all a prince of a af fictional African country comes to the United States and falls in love with a woman here and then mem different members of his family. And it's really extremely charming. It's a sort of, you know, you sort of feel like you're in Wakanda or something. Um, it's, you know, a made up country with a fictional uh, monarchy. Oh, very cool. I'm going to add those to my ever-growing TBR list. Thank you. <laughs> Lori's pick for the week is The Marquis Makes His Move by Diana Quincy. Thank you, Lori, for that choice. Well, that does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next week when my guest will be Lee Newman, author of Nobody Gets Out Alive, a story collection Kirkus calls Big-Hearted Stories of Domestic Discord by a Writer with a Clear-Eyed View of Alaska's Romance and Hardscrabble Realism. That's a starred review for Nobody Gets Out Alive. Can't wait for next week. But until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.